Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to August's Movies Podcast. Coming up, we discuss the latest Blu-ray disc news, and we also discuss BD Live, and we look at how the movie media is changing from magazines to online. And as usual, I'm joined by the AV Forums Movies Review Team. Uh, this month we have Chris, Alan, Mark and Simon. Hi guys. Hello. 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 And uh, we're going to kick off straight away with some news. Uh, this is probably going to take the next half hour, so uh, you might want to skip forward. Uh, Chris, talking about Gladiator coming to Blu-ray. Gladiator. Yeah, fantastic film. <laughs> Where's it been all this time? Um, finally, we got a Blu-ray release for Gladiator. Ridley Scott's uh, magnificent, in my opinion, um, ancient Rome classic. Uh, it, it finally comes to Blu-ray, as I say, on September the first this year, priced at thirty-nine dollars ninety-nine. Um, and we have both versions of it. We have the extended cut, the director's cut, which I can hardly testify is uh, my preferred version. It's a lot more meat on the bones, and it makes a lot more sense. I would have thought. Um, and we have the theatrical cut as well, which is still quite a big sweeping epic in its own right. Now, obviously, we're going to have the all the package of goodies that were on the extended cut that came out on standard disc quite a while ago. Commentaries with uh, Ridley Scott on the two of them. He's on. He, I think he does a single one on on, on one version, then he's talking with uh, Russell Crowe on another chat track. We have extended makings of... I mean, these are really epic stuff. Ridley Scott really knows how to go to town on uh, behind-the-scenes footage and makings of and, you know, the whole comprehensive package, as he's done with Blade Runner as well. Um, so you're going to have a really, really... Um, day out with the disc in that, in that regard. Uh, visual effects, explorations, deleted scenes and abandoned scenes, uh, My Gladiator Journal, which is the personal diary of the young guy who plays Lucius. Uh, all... Interesting stuff, you know, especially if you're a massive fan of it like I am. Hans Zimmer on scoring uh, Gladiator, uh, a great, great score, got to say. Strength and Honor, creating the world, which is the full immersive thing about uh, the production at large. And I think you've got um, a lot of reincorporated footage into picture-in-picture tracks. Um, I think under the titles of The Scrolls of Knowledge and Visions from Elysium. So, you know, it's going to be the all-round package. You're going to miss nothing out from the previous versions. It's all going to be there, and it's going to be, uh, well, it's going to look and sound majestic, one would hope. The um, sound is going to be DTS HD Master Audio 5.1, um, and it's going to sound blistering because the DTS sounded glorious on the first disc that came out. Sadly, it was missing off the extended cut. They just had a Dolby Digg 5.1. Never could quite work that one out, but anyway, we're going to have the full lossless hit this time around. And uh, I, I truly cannot wait for this. Uh, as many people know, it's my favourite film of all time. Uh, I used to watch it every other day. <laughs> but in the last year or so, I probably have only seen it once. So it's gonna, I'm not going to watch it until it comes out on Blu-ray. And then I'm really going to go to town on it. So you can all look forward to that then. Yep, uh, that's coming. Uh, what was the date again? 1st of September, is that right, Chris? 
Um, September the 1st, yeah. And uh, the aspect ratio on that is? Uh, 2.39 to 1. Okie dokie. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, you other guys, are you big fans? Uh, Mark, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I certainly enjoyed it. I remember seeing it at the cinema. One of the few I really made the trip out to see. Um, just really returned to kind of sword and sandals epics, you know, just large-scale films that, you know, were really an experience. And so uh, I very much enjoyed it at the cinema. But it's one of those films that I've always felt slightly shrunk on the home screen. Yeah, and uh, I, I think the the big thing for me, the big performance for me, was uh, Ollie Reed. Um, what, what about you, Alan? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, one always compares these sort of things to Spartacus, you know, uh, the way that the way it fills the screen. Uh, but uh, Ollie Reed, uh, he was quite famous uh, for for the scene that he did. He was, was bigger one, than the screen, wasn't he? Indeed, and there, there was one scene where uh, he was uh, filming a scene with another chap, and he was meant to um, get hold of the the guy's um, bits, as it were and hold them in the shot and then when the director said cut he was meant to let go uh, while they reset the camera for the close-up and in actual fact during all that time while they were resetting the camera he kept his hand where it was so <laughs> just thought a few people were, might like to know that yeah. and the guy whose uh, plums were unceremoniously gripped was um, <laughs> I can't remember his name now but he's quite a famous Iranian comedian there aren't too many of them around Umar Jalili or something am yeah, I right? that's yeah. the guy uh, my friend was actually in Gladiator as well, and uh, he was one of the guys who, in the first cut, he was in the ex- the deleted scene, where in his fit of rage, to um, you know, Maximus has escaped, and uh, plot spoilers ahead, you know, uh, Maximus has escaped, and Commodus um, is none too pleased, and to make a show of his force and his power over Rome, he has two poor innocent Praetorian guards executed. And my friend was one of the two guards. Luckily, his scene, which is quite a lengthy scene, to be honest, and quite a, a tense one, um, is put back into the extended cut. So finally, he does get you know, his, uh, his day in, in glory. Um, he, well, what he did say, and it, this comes down to Ollie Reed again, he said that when they were in Malta, Ollie Reed tended to um, ignore all the big stars of the, the show and all the like Ridley Scott and everybody else. He went to one bar every single night, um, but he would take out all the extras and all the you know the lesser supporting cast, and he would treat them every single night. The 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 bill was his own, and everything was on him. And he said he was a fabulous guy, literally literally larger than life, a great big fella physically, and his his sheer persona and aura was just you know enormous, and you, you couldn't get past. He said he was a great great fellow though, full of anecdotes, loved his beer, and you know they had a great time with him. Obviously, it ended up being a tragic um, time as well, but he's got nothing but great memories of the uh, the whole experience. He's actually a stage actor, and he's been on TV as well, so it wasn't just Gladiator, but that was his big screen sort of debut. And imagine that, you're in a big Ridley Scott movie, and, and your your big scene gets cut out. <laughs> it's going to be a slight annoyance, hasn't it? Yeah. But well. I can't wait for it, can't wait for it. And we've all said that, you know, it's a, you know, a glorious return to the sword and sandal epics of, of your... But uh, it's Russell Crowe's performance. Uh, the guy can be a jerk in real life, as we all know, but that is one incredible, intense, totally um, committed performance, which gets me every single time. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. And, of course, he's now doing Robin Hood with Sarah Ridley Scott again, and he looks just like Maximus in it. So can't wait for that as well. 
Okay, okay. So uh, that's Gladiator 1st of September uh, for the Region A. Do we have a, a Region B release lined up, do we know? Uh, well, we do, yeah. I don't know if it's concurrent. Um, it's certainly around the same sort of time. Um, and, and I think the package is identical, I think. Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you a wee story about Ollie Reid. Um, um, uh, I saw him one night in the bar at Shepparton, Friday night, and everybody generally buggers off about six o'clock. So he's in the bar and he's knocking the stuff back. And he, he was a nice, affable guy at the start, but as soon as the drink got into him, his eyes kind of changed and he became a bit, what I would have called, um, not vicious, but mean, the Americans would say. And uh, he, he tried to pick fights with people. He picked fight. He picked a fight with the person who uh, seemed to be the smallest guy in the room. He was even smaller than me. And um, unfortunately for all of you, this small guy just happened to be a stuntman as well. And... You know, what seemed like an easy victory for Ollie turned into him getting thrown around the bar like you've never seen before. And it just shows you how people can get it wrong. But we, we all thought, because we were just there for a quiet drink, we thought, serves the bugger right. <laughs> you know? One of the wild men, wasn't he? Yeah. It's, it's things like that, which, you know, it's, it's antisocial, it's stupid, but it makes great characters. Yeah. You know, you, you hate the scumbags who are in pubs who are doing that sort of behaviour anyway. But uh, when it when it comes and this is the the weird hypocrisy of the whole thing. But when it comes to a renowned stage and you know movie actor, someone like Ollie Reed, uh, it becomes a great part of their persona, yeah. an anecdote laden um, path that you can discuss at length. And you know, isn't it weird? It should it should be a scumbag, but he's not. We love him. Um, there was also the the TV interview. I'm trying to remember which TV interview it was now, which uh, chat show. Oh it was. yeah. But when and he, he turned was up completely drunk, drunk as a skunk, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's hilarious, absolutely mm. hilarious to watch. But um, so we're going to move on to Alan. Um, Alan, you have uh, Star Trek again. Indeed, um, Star Trek: The Next Generation movie collection coming out on the September the twenty second this year uh, from Paramount. Um, hot on the heels of the original movie collection, which um, you know we all the Trekkies have gotten all love. And you'll recall that the original uh, movie collection caused a fair bit of controversy with people saying the picture quality was so variable and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've I've been watching it and I just wonder what these people have been smoking because it seems pretty good to me. So hopefully the the next generation movie collection will be good because the, the movies are newer. And in this package we get Star Trek Generations, which was basically the handover movie between the original Star Trek cast and the new. So in there um, you've actually got Patrick Stewart and you've got um, uh, Mr. James D. Kirk himself um, so or Captain James D. Kirk to get it right uh, so not only do you have Star Trek Generations in the package you've got my favourite of the lot, Star Trek First Contact I saw that in the cinema when it, when it came out at a special screening and we had Klingons and we had people in the uniforms which made me feel very underdressed um, but we also have Star Trek Insurrection, which I thought was one of the weaker ones. Uh, Nemesis, probably the weakest one as far as I'm concerned. But we have a bonus disc in the, the set uh, called Star Trek Evolutions, which looks at the evolution of the Enterprise, it looks at the villains of Star Trek, uh, and something that says, I love the Star Trek movies, so you can only guess that that's uh, interviews with fans. Um, and farewell to Star Trek The Experience. Uh, so um, there's going to be a whole load of... Uh, uh, extras with it, including commentaries uh, on Generations. There's going to be a commentary by the director David Carson and Manny Manny Koto, um, who was the uh, 
who also worked on the picture. And with First Contact, you've got a, a commentary by Damon Lindelof and Anthony Pascali. Uh, in there, you're, you're also looking at Industrial Light and Magic's work on the, for the next generation. Uh, on Insurrection, you've got a commentary by Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis. Um On Nemesis, there's Michael and Denise Okuda, who were more on the production side. And overall, it's going to be, I think, another nice package. So it's one that would be rather nice to have, uh, one ni- a nice, to, nice to see. So we're looking at September the 22nd. Paramount, so you're looking at AVC MPEG-4 probably for the encoding. And, you know, as, the, as I said before, they're more recent movies, so there's no real reason why they shouldn't be good. Cool. And uh, other guys, you you looking forward to uh, the Generations films? I've got to say, I wasn't that big a fan. First Contact accepted. Massive. Uh, Trek fan but The Next Generation um, always left me cold I've never been a fan of it uh, I never watched much of the series I've been force fed episodes of it by people who were like devout Trekkies and like the whole gamut of stuff but the movies I could take them or leave them now having said that I'm undoubtedly going to get this collection as well and which I, I'm looking forward to because I like to things I may have dismissed in the past I like to you know reappraise them in their best possible format, I suppose. So uh, it'd be nice to see them again and see if my opinions do change. But I'm not, you know, I'm not really excited about this this set. I, I've got, I've got to say, I was really disappointed with the next generation films. I thought they were just Star Trek films for the sake of being Star Trek films. Yeah, first two were good. I thought Generations and First Contact, but after that, I thought they were just weak. I think there's there's a general feeling that the next generation films were just a a bit dry and so tried to add in um, extra little bits of action that never really felt right but in general the next generation was kind of more sci-fi more kind of classic dry sci-fi as opposed to you know the emotional um, turbulence of the kind of 60s and 70s that the original series kind of brought with it and so I think that that just yeah that just lost something when it came into a feature-length film somehow it just didn't quite translate to an epic of the screen just to put in you know interesting little things about quarks and parallel universes or whatever they needed some grand baddie and it never really looked right to see uh patrick stewart battling something in the same way that it did with you know uh william shatner getting his shirt off yeah um okay so we're moving from uh, one big screen franchise to another and uh, simon news on lord of the rings well, absolutely, yes. Uh, highly anticipated set, probably since the beginning of Blu-ray um, when it won the format. It was the big, one of the big questions was when is Lord of the Rings coming? The other ones, when was Star Wars coming? Well, Lord of the Rings has been announced. Sadly, only the, the theatrical versions, but we all know it's just a money spin exercise because the extensions. Yeah, exactly. They've done it with Star Trek. They, they do it. They'll do it with Star Wars. They do it with everything. Um, we will get the um, in the fullness of time the the extended versions. But in the meantime. I still think it's going to sell phenomenally and everyone's going to buy it and we're going to cover it except Chris because he's a boo hiss. Um, Coming from Warner Home Video um, on November the 3rd of this year, so still a few months away, um, the first three films and a seven-disc set, theatrical versions, as I said, in their original aspect ratio, 2.39 to 1, 1080p. um, Warner will probably be VC1 um, at about $100.00. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I, even though the extended versions are 
um, slightly more rounded, slightly better films. Um, I very, very much enjoy the theatrical versions, and I think they're going to look really, really spectacular. I can't see anyone who's not going to want to pick these up. Um, we're all going to double dip. I know we are, even though we are yeah, we're it, it quite seems, convinced. <laughs> it seems to, seems to be this this thing that people think that the picture quality on the the, the DVDs was was very good, but um, I've got to say it's probably some of the worst looking uh, transfers I've ever seen on DVD just because of the high uh, high pass uh, filtering that was on there, which sure. was taking a lot of the uh, detail uh, out of the high frequency range. Um, and I always thought they looked soft on DVD, so I'm hoping that they use uh, another transfer for the high def versions. And the second thing that as um, the films went on, the darker scenes seemed to lose a lot of integrity. The black seemed to lose substance, and uh, it tended to be very grey and green and mushy. But there was there were certain some things which had been cleaned up. Like I've always cited the shot in Fellowship of the Ring where, at the cinema, when you saw the Fellowship first rise, uh, go over the crest of a mountain, an epic, um, iconic shot. The matte lines were incredibly obvious and glaring, and it it, it took me out of the, out the film each time I saw it. But when it came to DVD, they were gone. They were cleaned up, and it looked well. It looked far more natural anyway. So with a bit of luck, you know, these versions will look even more spectacular. And as Simon says, uh, you know, we're all bound to double dip on these. I'm, I'm really going to fight the air to do this. And I, I love this trilogy, uh, you know, but I, I don't want to buy these. I don't want to buy them because I know that much better versions are due out at some point later. But, you know, come the day they're on sale, and the day, I don't yeah. want to review them. Someone's going to review them and say, look, they sound fantastic. And I'm going to go, oh, God, go on then. <laughs> Why the hell not? Well, as long as I get the, the high-pass filter and sorted, um, I'll be buying them as well, probably double-dipping. Yeah. Um, uh, and another thing, Jackson, he's just, he's just when he uses the 240 frame, he just fills it up, doesn't he, with his compositions. Uh, every shot in that series, there's uh, the, there's just this certain almost artistic look to everything. Yeah. It's almost like you're looking at an oil painting, isn't it? You think about that development that he made from his earlier um, short horror movies, ultra low budget horror movies and then to the Frighteners Heavenly Bodies and then to this you know Lord of the Rings one of the biggest epic most you know full of grandeur you know um, spectacles you could ever hope to make in that sort of scale and he gave it the scale he gave it the breadth and yet the the compositions are immaculate they're wonderfully well done vast backdrops very beautiful intimate close up sequences um, the whole gamut of emotional uh, visual emotional qualities to a movie everything was there sweeping epics and card you know whether you like the, the story or not you you can take nothing away from the technical aspects of it, his filmmaking abilities there and and alan i, I guess he's he's obviously harking back to and i'm sorry i'm coming to you with this question because i'm, I'm not picking you because of your age but he is <laughs> he's harking back to the old school ways of doing things isn't he yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, back to epics and uh, making things look fantastic, and um, you know, in the old days, as you say, um, an epic looked like an epic. Everything was on a grand scale, and certainly cinema scope. You need that to be able to show it off in the correct format, and it's nice to be able to see it in the way that the director intended. So uh, it's uh, yeah, I would agree with that. But I have to say, the Lord of the Rings, I thought. Um, uh oh. No. I, I, I would say they're good movies, but just a bit too long, a bit too sore on the bum after a while, you know. 
I've got cut him out now. Cut him you out. You need now. to get Chris's no. cushion. No, I, I, have, <laughs> I have to say though, I, I'm with you on that one, Alan. When I first saw Fellowship, um, yeah, I, I've got to say it's the first time I've actually felt the cinema seats. Normally, you get lost in the in the story, but I don't know what it was. I, I just didn't connect with it the first time I saw it. Second time, yeah. Great. Um, well, okay. there's the conundrum, though, isn't it? I mean, these are big cinematic movies, but the best place to see them probably isn't at the cinema because yeah. you're going you're gonna to get severe numbut, aren't you? Yes. That's because someone comes around on films that, that are over 110 minutes and fills the seat up with concrete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for, the films, you know, you know, they don't. They can be as long as they need to be to tell the story. I don't have a problem with long movies at all, unless they're completely utterly boring, and these never ever were. Even the extended cuts, there could be some scenes which you think, well, do you really need that? I mean, thank God that Tom, Tom Bombadil wasn't put into it. I mean, imagine the complete and utter diversion that would have created. Serves no purpose whatsoever. But, but, but you see, Chris, this, this is the point I was trying to make, that I didn't get into it the first time because I, didn't, I hadn't read the books and wasn't aware of yeah. the, the characters. Um, I, I think there was this assumption that, that people on first viewing knew at least the basics, which um, I was never a fan of the books. I'd never read the books, and it took me a second viewing to actually you know, connect with it and, and get involved with it. Um, well, I certainly think in the case of literary giants like these, whether you've read the books or not, um, the director has, uh, nowadays especially with um, you know, people's ideas of how films should be, um, he has an obligation to give it all, to unless he's doing... Um, a slightly less faithful adaptation and being upfront about that. If he's going to do the books as they're meant to be, it has to be like that. Has to be like that. Whether newcomers come to it and they're like, oh my God, this what a slog this is, and they don't quite get it all. In the fullness of time, <laughs> sounds like a quote from the movie. In the fullness of time, you're going to grow to love that aspect, um, or at least appreciate what he's done. It's an achievement. It's an epic uh, achievement in every sense of the word. And I, I think you know, time has proved him right to have done so. Yeah, I th- I'd agree with that. Mark, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say the reason perhaps why it, it's hard for some people to get into this kind of thing first time round is because I think when you've read the book, you therefore there's a greater amount of emphasis put on uh, characterization and this kind of thing. So when you finally see it on the screen, it draws you in from the, you know, the first frame. But also, it can set out the parameters of of uh, what the universe is and what's possible. One of my problems with the uh, the Rings trilogy coming to it without ever having actually even cracked the spine of one of the books after seeing the size of them um, was the fact that you don't really know uh, coming to it fresh where the rules are. Um, Gandalf, how many times can he come back from the dead? Uh, does he die? You know what what things can fly? You know. Uh, how far can you fire arrows? You know, if there are well, massive elephants, are there going to be massive mammoths? You know, is there a hippo around the corner <laughs> that can defeat everything? That's, well, that's, you that's know, part it, of the beauty of um, a fantasy movie, though, isn't it? Whether you know the story or not, you, you, you want to be taken on a journey and you want to see things you, you, know, you barely could imagine beforehand. The beauty of it is for people who've read the book, all of a sudden they get, they're seeing these things, you know, in possibly the best, so far, um, version they could, they could imagine. Uh, newcomers again it's just spectacle it, it just it washes over you with an enormous amount of imagery and character and it's it's lots of subtext and you know subplots and things there's a lot going on it, it's not to be entered into lightly that's 
that's really the crux of the matter. So people who went in there, you know, families take the kids. Oh, it's fantasy. Hey, ogres and trolls and archers and bowmen and elves and things. Wow, it's a lot more than that. Um, and you know, it's not one for kids, at least initially. But I've got perhaps the the, the best example um, of all. Like my, 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 he's eight now, but he seems to have been great. He, he's been weaned on these movies, and he grew up with Lord of the Rings. Probably because I loved it that much, I bought every single figure going. For, you know, for him, but really for me. And uh, now, oh, you know, really, he, he, can, he can quote the movie. But as he's got older, he he sees things in it now which are you know, far more emotional, far more important and resonant. I'm not trying to like you know, you know, you've got to see it for what it is and understand all these deeper subtexts. It's a film that can be seen on many, many. And I kind of view it as one movie, not as a trilogy. Because uh, they do flow that well together, I think. Um, it's a film that can be taken on many different levels, and you can dip into it. And, and with regards to the book itself, if you look at the case of Helm's Deep, the Battle of Helm's Deep, it's basically a couple of pages in the book, but it's a massive chunk of the movie. So what Peter Jackson's had to do, realising that you know, the book is enormous amounts of poetry, song, and descriptive passages of people and characters and times and places, but he... he he knows it's got to be spectacle there, so it does differ in those respects. You want the battle, you want the action, and my God, does he deliver in the, uh, the action stakes. It's phenomenal stuff, isn't it? Oh, well, yeah, he, he yeah. clearly knew that the second film had to be a massive event and contain a slightly kind of darker turn. That's got to be the kind of peak of the story arc as a whole. So yeah. I can understand why he, he placed the emphasis on Helm's Deep there. I, I didn't even know that it was only just a couple of pages of the book. That's how ignorant I am. Someone's going to come on and say, oh, well, actually, it's mentioned in reference several thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, you've got to remember the half the books are actually appendices. <laughs> True. <laughs> I must admit, the, by the time it got to the last movie, uh, The Return of the King, um, we'd had, uh, I, I felt it had so many battles that it was a case, here's a battle, here's another one, and here's another battle. And I was beginning to switch off by then. Really? And I was, uh, then, the, then when the trees got up and started mar- marching around, I was thinking, oh, come on. You know, so well, I, I, get, I think I think the battles got progressively better, more, larger scale, and more ferocious, mm. um, and better thought out, better developed. But the weird thing that I it took a while for me to get my head around was the fact that um, in the final battle of Return of the King, uh, our main heroes barely featuring. Okay, they they do get there. Legolas has that bit where he runs up and down the um, the Muma Kill or whatever it's called, taking out literally <laughs> dozens of. Um, bad guys and downing the elephant as well in a marvellous uh, sequence marvellous, did I say marvellous then? marvellous sequence but basically it's the other guys in, in this massive conflict who has taken the accolades but the reason why he's done that is because you've already seen um, Aragorn Gimli, Legolas go through all their major heroics in the first two films so it would have become a little bit samey samey if he'd done that with the, um, the final massive battle Anyway, that's I, I love it, and uh, it's it's an enormous spectacle to really immerse yourself in. You can't go wrong with it. And uh, the release dates for that were? That's the 3rd of November, that one. Okie dokie, and uh, moving on swiftly, uh, we have another classic, uh, this time from the 70s, uh, Bit of Exorcism with The Exorcist, uh, Mark. Yeah, another Warner Brothers release, they've announced this one. Uh, the Exorcist, the version you've never seen is the... Uh, little tagline that goes with this one basically i doubt there are many people out here who aren't um 
familiar with William Friedkin's classic, but basically revolves around the story of a young girl uh, possessed, parents at their wit's end, and they call in the only man who can really do the job, an exorcist. And it's it, it's so much more than a, a simple scary story. It's, uh, you know, uh, William Blatty's original novel. It's it's more a, a, a search for faith on both sides of... Um, uh, both sides of the little girl from the parents side who've uh, raised her in some ways religious but it, it's more of a, a passing uh, relationship with the religion as most of us have and all of a sudden they're thrown into a world where it becomes all too real and uh, stories from the Bible all of a sudden have a have a tangible sense to them and yeah basically it's it's an all out classic and i'm I'm dying to see what it looks like on blu-ray mainly because the the shots were so dark and there was uh, such such a richness to some of the shots with the in terms of shadow detail that I'm hoping will be really drawn out with blu-ray. The only real fly in the ointment will be a question of whether uh the director William Freakin monkeys about with it as he did the recent French connection blu-ray where he uh recolorized everything. And I'm just hoping that he leaves well enough alone. But uh, these days I'm not fully sure what directors uh, decide to do after they sign off on things. But hopefully, being a Warner Brothers film, we might get the... Well, we should get the Dolby True HD soundtrack. And it should, hopefully, the musical score sound excellent. So, uh, Mark, you mentioned um, as, uh, you know, what the director had done. But if he's signing off on it, isn't that what he intends? Uh... Now, now that's an even bigger can of worms. It, it, you would say normally yes, and with with an auteur, you'd have to say that their well, their say is final, and it's basically their film. But when you have a, a cinematographer, uh, I believe Owen Roisman, don't know if I've got that right, but if not, keep it to yourself. Check that um, for you. Yeah, yep. Yeah, answers on a postcard and stick it in the bin. Uh, basically said he wasn't consulted, that he was appalled by it. Says, you know, he doesn't know what the director was thinking and he wants his name taken off anything to do with the transfer. And when the word atrocious comes from your cinematographer, then yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe that just trumps what the director's thinking. You were right, by the way, Owen Roisman. Oh, it was. Right. Yeah. Keep that well, to yourself then. Well done. Yeah, We'll dub that over with Chris's voice. And I don't know if anybody uh, recalls the, the Exorcist coming out in the 70s. I was around it, and I was, believe it or not, uh, at secondary school at the time. It, it was uh, released amid a blaze hang, of hang publicity. On, hang, on, hang on, hang on, Alan. Sorry. Nin- 1970s, you were at, you were at where? <laughs> I was at secondary school. Yeah, yeah pull the other one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Teaching. He was, uh, oh, he, was, he was the janitor. <laughs> See, I just, I just I don't get a chance here, you know. I'm get shot down every minute. Yeah. But um, it, it was, it was, yeah, it was one of these movies that really uh, um, was sold on um, word of mouth uh, and uh, a PR campaign that yeah, shocks and people fainting and that was it. Outside. Yeah, yeah. The, the stories about people fainting in the cinemas. Therefore, it must be really scary. Almost along the same lines as the Blair Witch Project was uh, publicised over the internet uh, with people saying how terrified they'd been. Um, I grew up in a religious family. I wasn't allowed to go and see The Exorcist. I never saw it for years. I, I saw it when it came out on DVD and I thought, what was all the fuss about? Although, no, 
the way AR, there, there's the case in point, mate, because um, deep religious people didn't want people to see that movie. They were totally against it. Really? And yet, what at its core is that movie about? If the devil's in there, you have to, if the devil's there, you have to believe in God. And of mm. course, what wins at the end of the day? God. So it's one of the most positive movies in yeah. theological terms that you yes. can hope for. It, but you it know, depicts the battle between good and evil and good wins out. True. But you know, from the publicity point of view, that a bunch of religious people writing articles in newspapers saying people should not go and see this because that is the best publicity that anybody yeah. ever asked for. Uh, I saw the same thing that happened with um, The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, I, I went to a, a screening. I have to say I didn't pay for it. I was in the bar at Pinewood and I was asked if I'd like to go and see You were there me. by the grace of God. <laughs> uh, you, you may well say so. And I went to see the, the movie and they had the director and uh, some some of the guys from the distributors there. And um, there's quite a few of us at the start and by the end end of the movie there was only the director and the distributor guys because we all got bored um so i did i did overhear the pr guys saying well okay yeah fair enough but never mind we're going to show it to a bunch of religious nuts next week and that should stir up a bit of controversy so they were banking on the same effect yeah. there tis, tis right yeah it's yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as bad pr is there yeah. Well, wait, it, it pretty much did for the sales of pea soup in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when I first saw it, and I, I saw it at quite a young age, um, but I was brought up on horror movies, and I, was, I, I think I had a pretty mature outlook on stuff. I'm not religious at all. My family is, but uh, so a lot of it, I asked with The Omen, um, which I dearly, dearly love, um, a lot of the theological elements, you know, kind of leave me cold. I just view them as horror movies and sheer entertainment. Um, but The Exorcist does have, you know, a real nasty tang to it. You have a, a young girl uh, horribly, vigorously masturbating with the crucifix, a shocking scene no matter how you look at it, um, and disgusting language issuing from her mouth. Marvellously done, of course, by Mercedes McCainbridge, with that, the God, that voice is going to give you nightmares forevermore. Uh, but it is disturbing. But it's a clever, well-constructed movie. It's a good thriller. It's a good horror movie. It's a good... A very moving and thought-provoking um, saga. I don't know how anyone could not could, could dismiss the movie. It's a very important. Again, it's seventies. It's a seventies classic movie, isn't it? The nihilistic um, decade when things don't always work out and the home is not safe anymore. Every single value was, was shredded in the seventies, and uh, this is one. Of, this is at the cusp of that of that wave of new cinema. So the version you're talking about there, Chris, is, is the version that was released in the 70s. The version yeah. that's coming to Blu-ray now is the re-edited one, the so-called version you've never seen, which is the, the, the happy spider ending walk. thing. Yeah. yeah, well, that bit's in it, but it's, it's the ending that's the thing, isn't it? The, the, mm. the happy ending, which yeah. is, you know, the, the, it was totally against what um, the, the producer wanted to do, and it's, it's freaking, again, just doing what he wanted to do. The freaking, we'll freaking. About, exactly, you know, he, he, he's just, he just seems to have... I don't know what's what's the matter with the guy. He's yeah. I'm not I'm not sure about the ending at all. Uh, that's, mm. that's not 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 a wise move. But the spider walk is without doubt. The spider walk, yeah. Classic thing. <laughs> Love that. Always I was haunted by images of that. And I thought, God, I've got to see this. It's got to exist somewhere. And then lo and behold, it it, it came out. <laughs> it's made up with it. But yeah, it's it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? This version. Has this has it got has it got both versions on this? I've got to ask. There's not really much from the actual press release. I'm afraid. 
one would hope, but then why advertise it as the version you've never seen? Yeah, it's yet to be released as such on DVD. And when it, you, you you could buy the the, uh, the the normal version, and then you bought and he brought out this second version that nobody wanted to see except him. <laughs> the version nobody wants to see. Yeah, yeah and except <laughs> him, and it was brought out. And uh, you know he's obviously won again, or perhaps uh, perhaps Warner or trying to. And of course, going back to the RPR discussion before, if he just tagged it as the version they don't want you to see, <laughs> he'd have mm. sold even more of them. <laughs> it's got a street date of only September the eighth, so you know they better hurry up with getting a few things out there. You know we haven't really got any any real information to go on at the moment. I'm well, sure something will come to light soon. I reckon it will get delayed. <laughs> it's been the devil's work yeah. <laughs> okay so uh, to wrap up on the news uh, this month uh, we're going to go to Chris for yet another 70s uh, classic Chris um, and I guess most of us here wouldn't be around if the, the storyline was true <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, we'd all have snuffed it wouldn't be in Carousel yeah Logan's speak run- for yourself sorry I'm 28 <laughs> oh yeah, you've got, yeah. Mature, you've got a very mature voice well, thank you, sir. I remember when I was 28. Only just. No, you don't. Don't lie. <laughs> yeah, Logan's Run. Uh, this was a, a great um, 70s movie. I remember going to flick a series when I was a kid. Um, a lot at the fantastic Phoenix Cinema in Wallasey Village. Um, a, a cinema that was just was reborn out of the ashes of the one that was blown up during the war. <laughs> Hence why it was called the Phoenix. It grew up out of its own ashes. Only had two screens. But I got in there for nothing, and I saw this film every single night for uh, for two weeks, I think it was at the time, um, and loved it. Uh, the model work, it, by the way, if you don't know what the film is, it's set in the 23rd century, a world of pleasure and perfection, as it so rightly says here in the press release. Logan, played by um, Michael York, is a, a sandman, a policeman. The idea is that this society, uh, it keeps young, virile, healthy, by eradicating the anyone who reaches the age of 31. Um, and they die. They don't know they die. They think they're reborn into some other sort of form, and it's a great thing. So they cheer the death of everyone who reaches 31. And it's a game called Carousel. People float around and get zapped by strange laser beams, and they writhe in sort of orgasmic agony as it happens, and everyone cheers. But, you know, it's not quite as simple as that, is it? They're getting wasted. It's a bit of euthanasia taking place. And um, people who don't want elect not to do this and go on the run, as it were, from these domed cities, that which are this future utopia seems to populate the earth with, they go on the run and they're called runners and the Sandmen go after them. And these guys are really hip coppers in their ultra-tight black uniforms and fantastic guns. Anyone remember the guns? Absolutely. Oh, they're yeah. brilliant with the yeah, the the, fla- the flame, flame muzzle flare. Oh, yeah. wow. Absolutely superb. Great sound effects too. Um, and they've gone, <laughs> if you go on the run from being killed, they'll catch you and kill you. It's as simple as that. But it's an underground and they kind of work out, this is all a big scam. Logan finds out certain things and all of a sudden, the authority he's working for, he begins to distrust and inevitably, hence the title, he goes on the run as well with the delectable, the gorgeous, the ever glamorous um, Jenny Agatha. And they flee the city and find something else outside. Anyway, but I say too much more about that. It's a, it's a great film, but it came out in 76. And at the time, it's models, model work, it's uh, photography, it's everything effects-wise. Look great. 
until someone called Mr. George Lucas came along and completely swamped it very shortly afterwards with Star Wars. And all of a sudden, Logan's run looked very, very old and primitive. But so what? It's a, it's a great um, 70s sci-fi thing. There's lots of ideas there, lots of, um, you know, metaphor and th- you know, food for thought. It's great stuff. You've got some very eerie sequences set in the ice caves. Remember the ice caves, everybody? Oh, With yes. Box, the robot, mm-hmm. fish, plankton, you know, plankton from the sea. And he wants to, he's frozen everybody in ice. I'm giving spoilers away here, something chronic, aren't I? But um, so what? <laughs> it's, it's just, it's wonderful stuff. Peter Ustinoff um, in, the, in the overgrown library uh, in New York City. Uh, no, Washington, D.C. it is, isn't it? And you've got his, his army of cats and things. You have the idea of the crystal in the um, the the new population's palms of the hands, and when the crystal turns, you know, it starts to glow, your time's up. It's, it's, it's great stuff, based on a, on a terrific book as well, but of course in the book, it, the age was actually dropped down to something like 21, which was really, you know, you haven't got a lot of time at all, have you? So a very, very young um, utopia, that the idea was there. Anyway, it comes out on, when does it come out? November 3rd, that's a long way off, I thought it was a lot sooner than that. Comes out November 3rd. This is an American disc. Um, list price of $28.99. Um, supplements, you've got a commentary by my director Michael Anderson, Michael York and Bill Thomas, uh, a small featurette called A Look into the 23rd Century and the film's theatrical trailer. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all these appeared on the previous standard disc edition. Uh, hopefully, they will improve upon the image that that had because it was very... Um, the colours weren't right, and the detail was rather lacking. So it's a Blu-ray release, and I don't know what the sound's going to be on it. Uh, can't quite tell from this. So yeah, that, that, that's all I can tell you, really, folks. Um, but it's a great, it's a great seventies heady sci-fi action extravaganza. It came up just before Star Wars, and it doesn't half look it now as well. But so what? It's great fun. Yeah, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the TV series that it spawned as well. Even that, that was yeah. only thirteen yeah. or fourteen episodes, yeah. um, but I have fun memories of watching that. Yeah. <laughs> and almost almost every TV series, uh, sci-fi TV series after it, uh, used stock shots of the uh, city, the bubble uh, city. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, oh, I forgot to mention um, the, the fabulous score from Jerry Goldsmith. Absolutely innovative. He'd already. Um, Worked wonders with Planet of the Apes with strange, unearthly sound effects um, and weird orchestration. And he went again into heavily synthesized stuff, which was rare in, rare in the early 70s anyway, um, for Logan's run, but also incorporated a full orchestra. It's a great, great score. Uh, really, for score fans, if you haven't got it, you know, by all means, go and get it. So, okay, that, that's Logan's run coming out on uh, Blu ray. And that wraps up our disc news for this month. We'll be back in a second. <laughs> Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. Okay, so uh, we normally cover reviews at this stage of the podcast, but this month we're going to do things slightly differently, and we're going to look at Blu-ray, and in particular the extras that are on Blu-ray, and more specifically... BD Live, and uh, we think it's an absolute waste of time. I think uh, that's the fairest thing to say about it. So moving on, and... (laughs) 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 That's a fair point, Phil. (laughs) BD Live, so far, has been utter crap. (laughs) BD Dead, I prefer to call it. So are we being unfair about BD Live? Um, 
So, guys, we uh, well, you guys all get the, the latest releases. A lot of these have BD Live features on it. So, what kind of issues are you seeing, and is there anything out there that's a cutting edge application? When when all all the dishes that, that, that pass through my hands, I generally have to check them for for regions, and I generally check out the BD Live as well. A lot of the time, the dishes that we get are um, pre-release copies, or they're very very soon before release dates and the bd life section although it's sort of there it doesn't connect up because there is nothing there um generally bd life becomes live after the release of the disc so once the the disc is live as such there is a little bit of content there now each studio has their own sort of menu page you've got a, a reasonably easy structure to go through um the universe have got quite a nice looking page sony have got a very very nice looking page the trouble is it's all very nice to look at if you can get connected and you spend well anywhere between two and five minutes trying to get connected depending on the speed of your connection if you've got a decent enough quick player once you get on there what you do find is there's virtually no content (laughs) um and you know the whole point of this thing is is you know for something extra to have but there just doesn't appear to be anything there of certainly nothing of any particular value they may stick on um uh, a trailer or sign or, or, or something and they, they've got these uh, these my chat things you can chat to each other while you're watching the same film over the internet or, or things like that things that i find completely pointless um i mean you i mean i'll let you guys who may have tried them out and I, I particularly don't like them the the only one that, that i found that was of any merit was the you SA version of the Terminator 2 Skynet edition because that had five or six different featurettes that you could either download or stream. Now that was, I thought was, yeah, this is what you want from BD Live. You want something like that, something extra that isn't on the disc that they can entice you to to buy and say, look, you get this, you get this, and you get this. It's fantastic. But that is the only one for me that's made any difference whatsoever. Of course, we all know the problem with that with with the the the, the, term, the Skynet disc anyway, you know you've got two different versions, the UK and the USA. The U the UK version of BD Live is rubbish. There is nothing there. It's completely crap. So you know you're on two different sides of the ocean. You've got the same disc but two different versions of BD Live. What's that saying to the consumer? You know, us poor buggers at this end here. I don't know. I don't know. It's saying emigrate. <laughs> emigrate. Or get a US player and import all your discs. I, I can't think of what the title was uh, of the movie, but I know that there's been well, there's a couple of them actually where they've had I've I've seen this elsewhere that the BD Live content was going to be a specific chat with the director, um, like a one-off sort of thing. I mean, I don't know how correct that is, but I can't remember what the titles were either. But I, I remember thinking like, oh, that that sounds pretty interesting, you know, if that's the way it's going to be, if you can actually speak to the guy who made the movie and you know interact that way. Uh, but I think they were doing that with the Watchmen disc. Was it Watchmen that was doing it? Yeah, I, I think they, I think they also did it. Didn't they do it with the Dark Knight? Do you know what? You're actually right. That is exactly what I must have been thinking of. Yeah, Christopher Nolan was doing it. Don't sound so astounded that I was right. <laughs> no, it's just weird. That one of my favourite films of all time again. Um, and I, <laughs> I, there's something I didn't think about there. Something I'd forgotten. But yeah, that kind of thing. That that'd be quite interesting. That'd be great, in fact. But. As I say, I can't access them, so I'm dependent on you guys to let me know how good these things really are. So, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about um, basically an application which isn't doing what, it's, what it was originally set out in the PR to do. Um, there's going to be discs in September which connect up to IMDb. 
um, and tell you all about the different scenes that you're watching while you're watching the movie, where it was shot, what it was shot with, um, who was the DP and all that kind of thing. Oh, no, that sounds good. That That's that's worthy. It's pure trivia and pure anal stuff, but, you know, I think, I think that's, that's a wise move. If you can do that, that's great. Do you know what? I just want to watch the movie. Yeah, that's understandable. But if you can... I love extra features. If it's a film I totally love and adore, and even if it's a film I don't particularly admire, it depends on the quality of the extras as well. If you can always find out something more about it, you can learn a bit more. Um, and I love commentary tracks. I love scene-specific commentary tracks. So if you can incorporate maybe a variation of that via BD Live, you know, or any whatever means necessary, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm up for that. You know, it's nice to have the option. That's that's what I'm saying, really. So, you know, some films are, are just crap, pure and simple, but there may be reasons why they're crap. And I want to hear, or, or the, maybe, the, the makers might try to justify why they made a movie in such a way. Uh, and you know, it's always interesting. I like to learn more about the movie. Well, you don't necessarily need BD Life for that, though. You know, I mean, they, that can come through on featurettes or, or, or directors' commentaries or whatever. Yeah. To, to move on a slight tangent here, I've just reviewed their DC and Warner premieres. Green Lantern first flight animated movie and I, I, I love these things as a rule but I'm not going to review the movie but basically on the extra features which looks like a really extensive roster of stuff there you've got featurettes and you've got loads of stuff there but no commentary track I hasten to add but the featurettes are complete and utter waffle now we've all experienced waffle in featurettes before but one of these is about um, the the ring that the Green Lantern wears and its significance in cultural history and um, religion and you know, folklore. Well, now, now that, that actually sounds... Now, I thought, well, that's going to be great. That's going to be great. It lasts for like a mere 12 minutes or whatever. It won't be that in-depth. But it was absolutely banal rubbish because everything that they said, which was carefully structured with liberally you know, dosed up with um, clips from the movie as well and clips from Lord of the Rings... Well, the animated version anyway, and all the stuff, scenes of Christ on the cross, uh, and all this stuff about talismans and amulets, and that was the direction that all the featurettes on this disc went in, and it looked great on the back of the packaging, it looked great on the menu screen, and you thought, oh, that'd be good, that'd be good, that'd be good. None of them, none of them were any good at all, and that was just lame stuff altogether. Now, we've all experienced this, uh, the padding out of a disc, but, you know, I I'd still rather something was there than nothing. Well, because it just gives you a bit more to have a look at, even if it ultimately ends up like, well, that was crap. And uh, you know, But I'd rather they put some time and effort into it. Obviously, some people are considerably better at constructing discs and their overall packages than, uh, than other people. Um, and, you know, well, Watchmen, we've already touched upon that. Um, and I think we should discuss just how innovative Zack Snyder's um, video commentary is. Although he's hardly even in it, to be honest. But uh, have we all seen it, by the way? No. No? Nearly. Basically, he, he's, he appears on screen and he's got two screens behind him. Uh, one of them's playing the movie, one of them's playing featurettes. And it's just... and he It's a clever idea. And I, I actually love what he's done here. Because he'll point out something on the screen as that, as that movie is playing on that particular screen behind him. Can you, can you see this here? Can you see this? And it's not like Stewie off here, Family Guy then. Can you, can you see this here? 
and they'll free, okay, we'll freeze the frame, freezes the frame on it, draws a circle around an item which you hadn't noticed on the screen previously, and we zoom in on a little detail which you'd never noticed before. And now, whether you think that's pedantic, boring, or whatever, but it's, it shows the, the uh, interactivity that a director or filmmaker has with you. And I, I like that. I think that's a really good idea. We're quite innovative, and it, I enjoyed it. it was, you learnt a few bits. <laughs> so, you know, it's, there's lots of good stuff that can be done with a new technology on these discs. The point there is, is that this is stuff on the disc. BD Live essentially is supposed to be giving you more, but ultimately everything's been done by the time the disc comes to you. There's, there's never really that they're not going to find another vault that's got a secret ending that they're only going to put onto BD Live. There's not <laughs> going to be anything specific there that's never going to be on the disc. Basically, they've cut all the trailers, they've done all the little featurettes they want, and it's on the disc. If it seems like BD Live is more a drip feeding for a gimmick, they're they're just trying to eke out. Oh, there's a another trailer. Well. I've got the disc here. I'm watching the disc. I, I can access the trailer that's on the disc in about 10 seconds. Why would I want to download one in 480p that will take me five minutes? I, I really can't see unless the feature is going to be used for, say, classic films whereby at given points you have um, uh, documentaries about uh, the film and retrospectives. Other than that, I, I can't really see what they're going to be pushing BD Live for. Like, well, uh, yeah, that's that's a fair point. But uh, I think I think um, do we not agree that it's nice to actually have that potential? They, they, at, at this point, at this point, there might be nothing worth there. But that isn't to say that in a few months, couple of years down the line, whatever, there could be really revolutionary things added on. It, no, it's, oh, it's, a, it's another avenue that can be explored for the overall entertainment um, spectrum. But I'm the sure only reason that BD Live is there is because HD DVD came out with a feature to start with, and it was something revolutionary at the time, and BD Live is their attempt to try and do something, but they haven't got any idea what they're doing. Um, yeah. And they haven't got any idea how to use the applications. They, I've got to agree with the IMDB bit for film fans, film nuts, will be a useful thing. Mm. Once you've watched the film, or if it's a film that you know, and you want to get that information, I get that, Chris, and, and I'm, I'm with you on that. I think it's it, you know it's extra value stuff, but what HD DVD was going to do was, uh, you know, you'd be able to get the latest trailers straight away online. You'd be able mm. to take your uh, your favourite scene from a movie and send it to your mate, uh, yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Well, that was that was there at launch with that format, and it wasn't there with Blu-ray. Yep. And it just seems to be a catch-up exercise to try and make Blu-ray seem more interactive and so on. But I don't think they've they've managed in any way to get. Uh, the applications to work um, the way they should work. I mean, uh, Kung Fu Panda had a, a featurette of Buddhist monks, uh, <laughs> which took 10 minutes to download and was waffle. Absolute waffle. Why was that not put on the disc? There was plenty of space on the disc. Mm. So why wasn't it just put on the disc to start with? And the other thing that I've just read about um, a few weeks ago, actually, I got a press release about it, is um, you'll now be able to buy items. Um, that are in the movie as the movie's playing with online shopping. Again, it was another feature that was on a Universal Disc HD DVD disc two years ago. And can you imagine what it's like in a Bond movie with all the Sony gadgets? <laughs> <laughs> to, I've got to say, for me, I think it 
I want it. <laughs> I know you would want it. Um, so let's get Alan's view on this. Alan, um, do you see any worth in these extra features? Um, at the moment, no. Uh, but I can see from a marketing point of view that if it offers a way of online shopping uh, linked to a film, I can see commercially there being a good reason for it. Uh, but frankly, I just... I just want to watch the movie. I don't. I don't want uh, any more shovel loads of um, extras than I've got at the moment. Um, you know, some something that will give me a bit of background to the film. I watch the doco uh, quite happily, but there's a whole load of stuff on on uh, discs at the moment that I really just don't want added to. Um, if I <laughs> if I if I see a disc that's got tons and tons of extras, I'm thinking to myself, I'll probably avoid that one unless it's a really super duper movie. You got Towering Inferno, didn't you? Yeah, it's great. Which has got probably the, the, the biggest looking roster of extras that I've ever seen. Indeed, it has. But you know what? There was no really good chunky documentary about the making. There was a 20 minute um, yeah. uh, that was done at the time. And for the recent stuff, they filmed interviews with various people who were like um, uh, storyboard illustrators and all that kind of stuff. If they spent a wee bit more money, they could have made that into a proper chunky 35-minute yeah. doco. This, this um, is the point I was going to come on yeah. to. Um, the, you, know, you can have commentary, you can have featurettes, you can have you know, animatics, all sorts of things, but nothing really beats a good full-on making of documentary. Don't split the bugger up into three or four parts. Pre-production, production, post-production. Don't do all this sort of stuff. Just give me an hour, an hour and a half long making of documentary. That, that's quite generous, but you know they can be done, and I don't find them boring at all. And if you meet the, you meet the actors, you meet the um, the people who made the movie, the scriptwriter, the director, cinematographer, the effects people, and you put it into a proper documentary where it's got a flow and a format. That you cannot beat that. Cannot beat that. It's 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 wonderful stuff the hamster factor and other tales of the 12 monkeys probably one of the best documentaries ever uh, absolutely extras that yeah, was added yeah. to longer than ever. the film itself yeah yeah mm. and and wizard oz as well the the documentary on that i can't remember the name of it but again longer than the film really in depth and and you got to know about loads of things behind the scenes that were actually really interesting and really quite funny like the munchkins getting drunk and, and having sex with each other yeah. yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> it was like, know. The, the, the it's rampant. a rampant, isn't it? <laughs> a bit of oompa loompa. <laughs> different film, different film, but <laughs> you get me point. <laughs> yeah, but but these are interesting things. You know, you want to hear about these these things that went yeah. on behind the scenes and you want to hear about the the arguments and the blow ups and, and stuff like that. And yeah. yeah, totally. And, and and in that kind of format, as a proper documentary, you can settle down to watch that without any interruption, without having to flick to another, you know, go back into the menu and, you know, press another featurette. It, you know, that's the way they should be done. Rather than filling out the back of a box where it's got this, 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 and this, when they're all, add them all together, you add like 15 minutes, but it looks like it's going to be you know, loads of things there. So a big full-on documentary. That's what we want. Which ultimately... Developers... Which ultimately you can't do on BD Live. It's too, it's too big. It's going to take too long to download. So it should be on the disc anyway. You got plenty mm-hmm. of room on the disc. So why is it not there? Yeah. Mm. BD Live has got to be bite-sized info, like the IMDb stuff. It's got to be trivia and just little bits and bobs, basically. It, they're never going to be able to stick an hour and a half documentary on it. So it's got to be on the disc to start with. 
which again brings brings us back to what exactly is BD Live there for? What are its aims? Because ultimately they don't really have any need to to put too much there because they've already got your money for the disc. So yeah. you know, what's its real aim? What's its purpose? Let's let's move things on a little bit then and uh, let's stay online and let's talk about the thing that we all do and that's reviews. Um it seems to be now that, that and, and this is where BD Live fits in because you want thing instantly over the internet and so on. And the internet's got its uses. Do you feel nowadays that film fans I've caught myself doing it now, picking up a magazine and I'll flick through in the shop and where once I would have bought that magazine and gone home and maybe read read it uh, from page to page or, or bought one, gotten on a plane or a train and read it page to page, I find myself flicking through it now and not actually reading everything that's in there because I got to know about it three weeks ago online. Do you guys exactly. think that that's the way things are moving now? I very definitely do. I totally agree with that. Um, I used to always religiously buy uh, movie magazines, a whole range of them, from the Fangorias to the Starlogs to Starbest to Total Film and Empire, the whole, the whole gamut. I used to love them, love them, love them, getting different opinions on the different reviews uh, from different um, journos. Loved all the features, the interviews, everything. But although I still get two of these magazines now, um, I don't read all the film reviews because I have, as you quite rightly put there, I've, I've learned most of what I need to know online already. Um, so they don't have quite as much um, relevance to me as they once did. And from, I know a lot of people who are heavily into movies too. I work with a lot of people who are uh, movie besotted. Maybe some influence I've had upon them. I don't quite know. But And they were all the same as me. They used to buy magazines. We used to... Um, talk about the full coming movies but now they don't need to we're online all the time so they're reading reviews they're, they're, they're reading our sites I've put them onto our sites quite you know vigorously and I think it's easy, easily more accessible for people to get onto but like, well, it doesn't cost them a penny anyway and uh, by and large they can get better more full depth and a lot quicker reviews of the movies that they're interested in than they can by buying a magazine which yeah, is tied down to its, you know, um, its previews and its its release schedule for publication. Yeah, I think that's what is the biggest thing for me. Uh, the fact that if I read a review in a magazine of a Blu-ray disc, it, it seems to me like an old movie. We covered it uh, ages ago, sort of thing. And another thing about um, the reviews in, in magazines um, is that, barring the likes of the magazine Death Ray, which I don't know if anyone's ever picked that one up, it's it. I think it's, I think it's probably one of the better ones around at the moment, because of this very reason. Uh, I think online reviews go more in depth, and you've got more opinion there, because um, by and large the writer is liberated by they can put down pretty much what they want to the extent that they want to go to, whereas magazine very often it could be a a lesser movie as far as they're concerned, but a great one as far as you're concerned. And then they've got like literally one paragraph on it. What to fit in to the magazine or the paper, it's literally just a couple of paragraphs at most. And what do you learn from that? Absolutely nothing. So online, you're going to get more detail. You're going to get more relevance. You're going to get more entertainment. I think I feel that I learn more from online reviews than I do from um, printed reviews in, in publications, um, simply for that reason. But I think uh, the important thing here is that magazines are not going to go away. That's not what we're what we're saying here. Um, magazines will always be around. You always need something to read on the train or on the plane, so you'll always pick up the likes of Empire and Total Film and that kind of thing. 
I guess what what you're saying, Chris, and and what we're we're, we're saying here is that if you want the you know the latest news, the latest gossip, the latest clips, the latest um, anything to do with the movies, then it has to online be online. Is the way to go. Yeah. And and Alan, you come from the dark ages before the internet. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Sorry, mate. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've come up through uh, reading the, the fan magazines like Photoplay and um, where you would have uh, Blu-ray reviews. Um, there are occasions when I, I would li- I, I do like to have something in my hand to read. Uh, and it's nice to look at pictures with text next to them and just not have anything else interfering with your thought patterns but for the thing that you're focused on. Um, and I can, I can see the benefit of that. Uh, the only... The reason you, I would also keep a magazine after I read it is if there's some sort of retention value in it. Um, you know, goodness knows what that might be these days. Uh, but in previous magazines um, uh, in the past, you uh, for say for filmmaking, you would have a, a little table that or a little giveaway card that you could take out that told you what um, TV system each individual country used, which could be useful uh, for, for DVDs at some point. Um, but apart from that, the the magazine was read and then after a week it, it was discarded. Uh, what we're doing, I guess, online is making uh, something that's more immediate um, and something that, that will stay around for easy reference uh, a, a pile of magazines tends to get relevant uh, re- relevant a pile of magazines tends to get relegated to someone's loft or um, stuck, in, <laughs> stuck in a box somewhere whereas I guess the reviews we're writing st- stay online and if people want to do a search uh, it's very easy to do an online search uh, to find a, a review on a movie that they might want to find out about it's, uh, there's the ease of access the magazine, uh, I, I don't think, does. But I still like a good glossy mag. I still like. I'll step. I'll still grab one in W. H. Smiths and think, well, that looks good. I'll pick that up and read it later. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I still buy uh, in the magazines. Um, and the thing is, because I'm a, a bit of a collector and a hoarder, I uh, I can't stop getting <laughs> these magazines, and I will. I don't get rid of any of them. I store them all up, and I, I do go back through them, but. Um, Another a point which I think we we should raise is that with being able to review online as well, um, you can have the opportunity of feedback as well. So you can actually liaise with the people who have read your review or have an interest in a particular movie or whatever it is you're reviewing. Whereas uh, magazines are obviously um, limited in their in their scope for being able to do so to a letters page or something like that. So I think we have certainly more of a, an immediacy and and interactivity with readership. I guess uh, the main thing for for these publishers, for these magazines, and we're not slagging them. And I hope people don't uh, think that that's what we're that's what we're saying. We're, we're basically talking about the, the way that the media is changing. And I guess these magazines really have to find something that that differs from what you can get online. And I've I think they need to look at areas where they can produce something that online could produce but would be very time consuming and is not up to the minute so would you not think that a magazine you you would rather pick up a magazine and read a, a big feature on like what we were talking about behind the scenes features so interviews with directors and um talking about the sound mix of the film with the person that did it and and that can do you think that that's maybe 
more where the the magazines should be aiming their their content? Yeah, possibly. Uh, we already get that, believe it or not, on the Blu-rays uh, as extra features. But um, you know, to take your time to read through for, uh, what someone said, uh, I, I used to do that. I, I don't do it anymore. Um, I, I do watch the docos that come with the films. Um, because if, if there's a feature on, you know, say special effect or, or something like that, uh, that I want to find out more about, I'll do it then. Um, we've become, I guess, uh, different in our, our uh, learning styles. Um, when you think you've got auditory learners, visual learners, and um, uh, people who learn through hands-on, uh, we've, I guess, become more audio and visual learners these days. Well, I, I definitely think there's there's certainly room for a, a symbiotic relationship between the internet and magazines, uh, and I think that's already starting. I think you're seeing magazines start to evolve uh, quite what they prioritise. I mean, uh, I remember certainly a, a few years ago there'd be at least, well, a, approaching almost a third of a magazine in certain titles would um, simply be what's coming up, the latest uh pictures from the production of something now that's on the internet you can get that straight away most people know about that long before the magazines even hit the shelves because you know some are writing you know 20 30 days before their publishing date whereas things like the in-depth features they need the contacts for that they you know they if they've got the time if you've got a month to write something that's really where where they shine, and that's the kind of feature that you don't tend to get as much of uh, on the web. So it, it's not quite the immediate snack that you'd get from the internet, but it, it, there's still room for magazines to give people something of, of genuine substance. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, the internet, uh, you can use it, you, you're in work, lunch break, oh, I'll go on to IMDb, I'll go on to Intercool News, I'll go on to AV forums, I'll do this, that, and the other. Um, so you're getting your fix and you're getting stuff's updated all the time. It's, it's evolving. The magazine, yeah, it's, it's governed by a, a timeline. It's published on a certain date. And how often in the likes of the, the big ones we've already mentioned, you know, so-and-so film is, uh, is, is released on so-and-so date, but it wasn't available for review at the time. So you look like, oh, God. But you go online, oh, well, there's a review of it right there because someone else has been able to beat that deadline. But magazines, there is always a place for them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> under the bed <laughs> beside the toilet <laughs> there's, all, there's always a place for magazines uh, it's something tangible um, the the style of a magazine as well it's something that's familiar it's something that you like the look of you like the feel of and again the collectability angle comes into it as well certain people just just you know browse through in, in the store and put it back on the shelf and they've learned a little bit but then go back on the internet for people like me, I say I love the internet, but I still buy certain magazines, and you know, and, and I don't think I'll ever stop buying those ones. I guess the other thing is that magazines have access that a lot of online doesn't have. Um, if you work for a publishing group, they will have access um, to the people yeah. that that work on these productions and, and so on. So they should be able to get uh, content that isn't open to the internet. Now this comes across as um, the professionalism and the integrity and the standing that a magazine has whereas their journos and their people their PR people are held in a lot more higher esteem even now by the industry 
whereas the likes of us, we're just viewed as, you know, um, novices, uh, amateurs. It's a, it's a hobby. It's a sideline for us. Anyone can get up a website, but can they join a magazine as a journalist or as a, an interviewer or, or whatever? You know, it's a, it's a, all of a sudden they have more legitimacy than we do, and that's something that we can't really, certainly at the moment, change. Which is I find a slight weird conundrum because there's more people reading, I think, online and studying online than there is, and there's more clout with online, certain online sites, without a doubt, than the magazines. Um, hopefully that would change, <laughs> and we get the opportunity as well. But there's a there's a definite difference um, in almost social standing as far as we're concerned and, and any other most other online uh, review sites but mark do you think it's 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 harder for um uh, online publishers that, that maybe don't have a trademarked uh, red top or whatever to get that legitimacy that the content that they're providing is worthwhile oh definitely i mean it just when you come to research a particular film for for reviewing you can find great information in the on the tiniest of websites or just literally on someone's own blog you know and and that's never going to get out to as wide an audience as as a glossy magazine or anything so yes to a certain degree the the gems are out there but as chris says you have to kind of sift through a lot of dross to find them but once you do once you find it just i'm sure everyone's got half a dozen sites that they'll regularly go to for information on one thing or the other. Once you've got those, it, it's it's pretty much the same. I view it as as subscribing to a magazine or getting the daily paper. You you check those yeah. sites once a day and you you get the latest information. Trust and consistency. That's what you look for in a in a site. As with anything, any kind of information tool, trust and consistency. So long as they've got the facts and they're they're fairly regular at delivering them. You know that's that should be all that you need, really, and you can you can then cash it a bit further and find more. Well, so as long as the site polices itself and is 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 rigorous in its information, um, I mean, I'll talk about us a little. little bit. I mean, we we are when we present ourselves, talking about the movie site, we've got strict guidelines about how we produce our reviews, pictures, sound, extras, everything is goes through a rigorous testing procedure, and that is consistent through everything we do. And that is how I measure our quality against everyone else. I'm talking magazine to site everyone, and that's how I know that we are, you know, up there. You will know pretty much instinctively when someone's completely utterly blagging something. I've come across this new. I mean, I've I've, I've written in the past lots for lots of different uh, media, and I've had to do research and I've sourced out lots of uh, pitfalls and traps, and it, it applies to the internet as well. So a fair bit of common sense and a fair bit of cross-referencing as well. If, if you feel the need to do so, you're going to put a fact in about something and you've really got to, which is something that you don't already know, you know for definite and you go like delve a little bit further. It's got to be right. And, and as Simon says, you know, some, some sites can put in very spurious claims and make up their own you know, waffle about something. By and large, you can normally cut through that. But if you're in doubt... The tools are there to cross-reference things ad infinitum. So the the internet is a glorious, um, dangerous tool which should be should be used with care. <laughs> but it's a, it, everything is there. You know, it, it, it's unbelievable. You know, the amount of information that's you know to be found. And, you know, I don't I don't think I could uh, 
live without it at the moment. Oh, my, my reference books and horror movies, western, sci-fi, and that. Uh, I, I would still love them, but there's something else I should have mentioned before. Um, publications about movies. The books, the tomes on films nowadays have, that are worthwhile are very, very few and far between. Whereas in the 70s, early 80s, up until the 90s, you actually had very great um, books about genre coming out fairly regularly, and I would tend to buy them because they were you know, good critical um, journalistic uh, um, productions. But they don't tend to be around anymore. There's plenty of books written about movies now, but they're not the same caliber uh, because so much more, we, we all know so much more about them in the first place because of the internet, because of the immediate accessibility of, well, old movies. Okay, I'm, I'm going to come to Alan for this one, and this is the, the final point. Um, with the internet, immediacy plus interactivity, um, uh, you write for a, an internet site, so what do you feel about the, the interactivity that's there with your readers? Well, interactivity with readers, um, in as much as they, they can get access to reviews uh, e- easily, quickly, and they can provide feedback. Um, from my point of view, um, I do tend to read the feedback. Uh, I don't always respond to it uh, in in. Uh, <laughs> online uh, but uh, I do think to myself has, has this person got a valid viewpoint um, and uh, uh, while some people do appear to not understand the fact that there, there is room in the world for more than one viewpoint um, I do think carefully about what people say in case they actually have a viewpoint that maybe I can learn from um, it's, it's something that's important for reviewers to do not to just assume that they're right all the time, but from the point of being right, checking in any information that we we uh, we print or put online, that goes without saying. We have to do that. But um, sometimes people's own viewpoints can open up a different line of thinking and expand your own um, thought waves, if you like. A dialogue, basically. Hmm. I like the way you said you don't always... always always respond online sometimes you turn up in person on the doorstep <laughs> <laughs> with, with the baseball bat <laughs> no I, it's, it's a double edged sword that because um, it's nice to have feedback we all like people going oh that review is great oh, it's wonderful I'm going to buy that film because of what you said there but you don't like it when they, they obviously you don't like it when they, they disagree with you um, but as you quite rightly said you know a dialogue can be opened up and if it's constructive and, and entertaining and fun, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's interactivity with, with the people who you're talking to. You know, you've just preached to them for like how many paragraphs. So they've got a bit of a right after having sat through and read through all that you've written. You know, it's only fair that they can say something about it themselves, isn't it? Yeah, and don't just go to the score bit and then complain. But yeah, read the points first, folks. Read what's made that score come to, you know, come to light. There's reasons behind it, and it's very hard to score films. And I'm one of the most, uh, I always had to score quite highly, um, but, you know, that's just me. Yeah, I am pretty much echo Chris's sentiments. If they've taken the time to sit through something that I've written and, you know, if I've gone off on a tangent or something, I like it if they tell me if there's something that, you know, some way that I can improve my writing in future then I certainly want to hear about it. No one wants to think they're writing 
reviews that no one really actually reads simply because there's something that people don't really like about them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the important uh, points of the site and one of the reasons or one of the little feathers in our cap that we have over uh, the publishing industry is that we can get such quick feedback. Very well said. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, how, how many uh, magazine and you know, tabloid critics just have that highbrow attitude, possibly highbrow attitude, um, because no one can touch them. They don't hear anyone naysaying them or decrying what they've said, whereas we're open immediately to um, to our own critique from the punters. But we're all just film fans at the end of the day, aren't we? You know, whether you've written, you know, 5,000 words on something or just a 50-word precy as your own take on the film in the reviews thread. You know, it's, it's all relevant information. And it's yeah. always nice to hear what other people think of it. I think that's a very valid point. I mean, you don't want to read a, a review of a film from a writer that was, read, you know, had just finished an article for Gardner's World and was going on to write for Tennis Weekly. You want to hear from, yeah. from <laughs> film fans, don't you? Sure. Yeah, we're, we're, on the, we're on the same wavelength, and I think people feel a bit more reassured with that anyway. Whatever they say about uh, the reviews, um, if they're knocking it or loving it or whatever, they know that we're still speaking in the same ballpark, aren't we? Okay, that's all we've got time for this month, so my thanks to the AV Forums uh, review team. We had Chris, Alan, Mark and Simon. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It's been fun. And uh, we will be back next month with another Movies Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, queries, or you want to uh, add your thoughts to what we've discussed this evening on the podcast, then you can either send us an email to podcast at avforums.com or why not leave your comments under the podcast a thread in the AV Forums Podcasts Forum. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll see you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.